And uh, Wednesday night, we're going to take our upcoming, uh, we're going to take our text from upcoming Wednesday night study right now. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 as we continue through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the scriptures. We come to Matthew 17, um, where we uh, see what is uh, called the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, I remember when I was a little kid, you know, I've mentioned before, there's certain TV shows my parents let us watch. Uh, we had a little 13-inch black and white TV with a hanger and some foil to try to get a reception. Some of you guys remember that, maybe growing up. Um, but uh, we watched Little House on the Prairie, then, then we grew to the Waltons, uh, and then we, we went on, lived on the edge and saw Gilligan's Island. Um, but I remember around middle school somewhere along the way, uh, my parents let me watch, do you guys remember uh, The Incredible Hulk starring Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby? I brought the graphic here, you guys will enjoy this. Um, it was long before the modern day uh, Incredible Hulk uh, series and stuff, but, but uh, you know, I remember, do you remember the intro it was this, you know, Bill Bixby, you know, scientist was uh, giving himself too many gamma radiation rays or whatever, and, and then it says, and I remember the wording, a startling metamorphosis occurred. Um, and I remember that as a kid, like, what's a startling metamorphosis? That sounds really important. Uh, um, but as it turns out, um, we're really into this. Humanity is into a human metamorphosizing into something else. If you look at the top grossing movies that are the top seven in, in America uh, throughout all the time, uh, five of the seven are people that had a startling metamorphosis occur. Normal people that became sort of superhuman, the Avengers, Endgame, I think that's number two. Um, you know, the Black Panther, Avengers, Infinity, Infinity War was number seven. Um, Spider-Man's number three on that list. Like they're all, you know, normal people that sort of metamorphosized into something else. But that's all fantasy. There's actually a real story in the Bible here where Jesus will be transfigured into something that's, well, we're gonna see him in a metamorphosized state. Why do we see Jesus transformed, transfigured as a lot of the traditional people call it? Um, well, Matthew 17 gives us some interesting things uh, to look at and we should be asking questions about um, this story because there's much to learn here in Matthew 17. Let's take a look, verse seven, uh, verse, chapter 17, verse one. It says, and after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, which is the Greek form of the word Elijah. Moses and Elijah talking with him, then verse four answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. <coughs> Excuse me, if thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man until the son of man be risen again from the dead. 
The story of the transfiguration, pretty radical, pretty interesting, but what's the point? Well, as it turns out on Wednesday night, we finished chapter 16 and it left us kind of on a cliffhanger there. Um, and there was an interesting question uh, about was Jesus wrong and was he mistaken? There's people that say Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. And there's the critics of Jesus use chapter 16, verse 28 as proof that Jesus didn't know who he was or what he was talking about. Um, and let's, let's review that just for a second. In chapter 16, verse 28, verily I say unto you, Jesus said, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And so some people say, well, Jesus' kingdom never really came and those disciples died and so Jesus was mistaken. But I believe the answer to that question lies in the story that we're seeing here and hopefully we'll pick that up. Um, and we need to kind of dive deeper into this. Let's ask some questions about this chapter to kind of learn some interesting stuff. First of all, let's break it down. Number one, uh, who was there? Who's part of this story? Well, we start off with, of course, Jesus as the centerpiece, but we have Peter, James, and John. Um, scripture records three times when Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the three of them, and ministered uniquely and separately from the, all the other guys. Um, uh, and there were three occasions the Bible tells us about this. And by the way, all three occasions uh, have something to do with death, as it turns out. Um, the first uh, story we have there in Luke chapter eight, verses 49 through 55, where Jesus you know, goes into that house where that poor guy's daughter you know, died. And Jesus went in and he put out the mockers, if you remember that story, and raised the girl from the dead. Peter, James, and John got to go in there and be a part of that whole thing. Um, uh, and then this, the, another situation was the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, there's Christ goes into the garden in agony, you know, and he says, oh Lord, if, this, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of suffering, of death that he was about to deal with. But he said, but not my will, but thy will be done. And it was Peter, James, and John who got to go there in the garden with Jesus at that moment. And the third occasion is right here. Jesus brings the three up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, interesting for you Bible students, Jesus had sort of uh, uh, levels of leadership that were with him. It seemed that John was closest to Jesus. Of all the disciples, John kind of gets the close one. But then the next circle was Peter, James, and John. And then the next circle would be the 12 disciples. And the next circle, if you remember, there's 70 disciples. And then even out further, there's 100 disciples that, that are talked about in the New Testament. So Jesus had layers uh, that he would look to. But these three, why did Jesus um, pull these guys in for these uh, occasions? You say, well, Brett, you said they're all about death. Um, except for this one. What, what does the transfiguration have to do with Jesus's death? Well, we'll show you that here in our, our story. But I find it interesting that that's the topic of each of these. Um, and it may have something to do with lessons the Lord was teaching Peter, James, and John. You know, Peter would be the first disciple told of his death by Jesus in John 21. And Jesus said, you know, Peter, they're gonna you know, stretch your hands out and carry you where you don't wanna go. And that's exactly what happened as they took Peter and crucified him on a cross only upside down. James was, um, some say, the first disciple that was put to death. He was sawn in half lengthwise by his per persecutors. Um, John would be boiled in a pot of oil, but not die. Somehow God miraculously protected him so they would exile him to an island where he received the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ there on Patmos. But he would eventually die as an old man. So what, what is, why these three disciples? Uh, interesting. 
Um, that's, that's something I think Jesus was working in each of them uh, specifically, those three. But they were definitely kind of top tier disciples as it were. But the next question I would ask is, well, where did they go? And this is where I'm a little nerdy, I'll confess, but I get into the geography of the Bible and what, where it happened. And I, I like to kind of figure out why they went to certain places. I think there's reasons. Now, when you go to Israel, one of the things you'll find is they call certain sites, you know, the traditional site. And what I've learned over the years is if you go to Israel and it says this is the traditional site where this happened, you can pretty much guess that it's probably not the site that it happened. Uh, traditional usually means not in my, uh, my uh, vocabulary. In fact, most traditionalists would say that it's Mount Tabor there in Israel. And in Israel, they, they pronounce it with a V, Tabor. Um, in fact, for you uh, uh, gun aficionados, uh, Israel's um, you know, weapon of choice for their soldiers now are uh, the Tavor, named after this ma uh, mountain, which is uh, um, uh, where a lot of military stuff happened in Israel's days, including Deborah in the Old Testament. And Deborah, uh, and Sisera, that whole story, Barak, they, they all went uh, running down this mountain and attacking their enemies. It's kind of an interesting thing. So Tabor is an interesting mountain in the Bible, and there's a lot of cool stuff that happened there. But it's most famous now today for being the Mount of Transfiguration. And so they built the Church of the Transfiguration, as they always do uh, up on the top there. Um, the church contains three grottos belonging to the Crusader Church uh, uh, era. Um, there was a publisher who wrote about this. Three chapels of these grottos were with a small altar. They're called tabernacles, and they are said to represent the three huts which Peter desired to build. Uh, one for his master, the other two, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So they built those. Um, my problem with that is they missed the whole point of the story by building these grottos. They should have done that. I'll show you why here as we get into this, but uh, they missed the point, that's for sure. But why... Was this considered the original site of the transfiguration? Well, the first one who mentioned it is this old classic dude from, you know, like the second century origin of Alexandria. He was a controversial uh, 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 but prolific writer who wrote roughly 2,000 uh, treatises uh, in multiple branches of theology, everything from textual criticism, biblical exegesis. Like this guy was uh, profoundly um, uh, writing tons of stuff, hermeneutics, homiletics, spirituality, wrote about all that stuff. Um, uh, and even though he was controversial, he was influential. Um, he's been described by some as the greatest genius the early church ever produced, uh, this guy named Origen. He went up there and said, I think this is where the transfiguration happened. So a lot of people thought, well, Origen must be right about that. He was closer to the story than we are by only a you know, few hundred years. Um, but just because he said it doesn't make it so. The one that really sealed the deal was when Constantine's mother, um, you know, uh, Helena the Great, uh, uh, or Flavia Julia Helena Augusta, as she's called. And if you've been to the Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, they have a statue of her, and she was known to carry this wooden cross around. Um, but she was uh, a Christian um, who um, was one who loved to go to Israel, and she just basically declared certain places as holy sites. Um, and she was not an archaeological expert. Um, and she was a nominal biblical scholar. So like she didn't really even know what she was talking about, but because she said it, so the story goes, she went up on Mount Tabor and said, I feel it in my soul that this is where the transfiguration happened. And so they built the, ch the church and they went crazy saying this is where the transfiguration happened. Um, but the reason I go all into this stuff is because if you're into it, uh, it's a little frustrating because most real scholars uh, say it wasn't Mount Tabor. And there's a couple reasons why. 
Um, most scholars believe it was Mount Hermon. And I've been to Mount Hermon. There's no chapel built up here because, you know, while Tabor is only like 1,500 uh, feet in altitude, Mount Hermon is 9, 000, over 9,000 feet in altitude. And you can go skiing there. In fact, I went to this little ski village. It was in the summer, so the snow wasn't there. Um, but uh, it's kind of a cool place to go and visit. You can go up the ski lift. In fact, we paid off the, the guy that was there and said, hey, can we take the ski lift up? Uh, and, uh, and he let us go up. So, um, so we went up and, and checked out the very top, uh, over 9,000 feet. Uh, and uh, it was kind of a cool uh, thing to see because the description in the Bible says here in our text, it was a, a very high mountain apart. And, and uh, uh, if you look at the original text and do the uh, harmony of the gospels, it, it, it took them six days. Um, our text in the King James here is after six days, but some translators say it was after six days of travel, they made it to this very high mountain. Uh, Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel. And uh, there's all kinds of military stuff there because the wars of Israel, Syria, you can see Syria and Lebanon and, is, and uh, Israel all from the top of this. Um, uh, I might share some teaching stuff that I did up there on Wednesday night on Mount uh, Hermon. But, um, but all that to say up on this mountain, the point is they had to do quite a bit of work to get there. They had to hike up this huge mountain. They had to walk uh, like a several days journey from Galilee to get to Mount Hermon. Um, there's me saying hello to everybody uh, <laughs> as I'm going down the uh, ski lift. Uh, not a lot of skiers that day. But be that as it may, um, uh, all that to say, one of the, the words I'd like to focus on before we move on is in verse one, it says, they went up to a high mountain apart. Isn't it interesting how many times we see Jesus going away from the crowds and the multitudes? They, they get, get apart from all of that. Um, that word is operable and it's something we should notice. We saw it yes, uh, last, last week in chapter 16 when Jesus you know, um, uh, went up into the mountain. Um, I should say, what was it, chapter uh, 14, when we saw Jesus you know, going uh, up in the mountain, praying while the disciples went across the sea during the storm. And we keep hearing how Jesus would get away from the crowds and multitudes for time to reflect, pray, seek the Father. Um, and there's a challenge for us here. As we read the New Testament, um, you know, Jesus is constantly taking himself and the disciples apart and getting away. When was the last time with Bible in hand, attitude of prayer, no cell phone, you stepped apart and, and even made a journey to get away from all, all the, the noise to seek the Lord? Um, I, I challenge you, if you do this, you'll come back with vision, clearer um, you know, direction for your life. Uh, the Lord never fails us and it's a promise from his word. Don't forget what we're told there in Matthew 7, verse seven, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find, knock and it'll be opened unto you. So that's what we see. Who was there? Peter, James and John and Jesus. Uh, where were they? Probably Mount Hermon. Um, and it was a long journey and a big deal that they got apart for that. Um, the third question I would ask is, what did they see? And that's what we see there in verse three. Jesus was transfigured before them and his face did shine like the sun. Um, that's an interesting thing. Now, the word transfigured, as I mentioned, is that word that I talked about in the Incredible Hulk show. A startling metamorphosis occurred. The Greek word used for transfigured is that word. It's pronounced metamorpho in the Greek, which means to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. Um, and, um, you know, notice 
all the superheroes that transform, they, they're usually good, but they go sort of dark in some way, uh, sort of a worldly hero, sometimes even an anti-hero. Uh, uh, they're, um, they're bad, but they still somehow sort of save the day. Um, that's the way the world does it. But Jesus is already amazing. He's good. But his transfiguration, we see him sort of it seems better or in his glory, glowing as says here in verse two, as bright as the sun. Um, now, was this exaggeration? Cause we would say that man is bright as the sun, but it makes you wonder, was it really literally bright as the sun? I, I think it might just be. And there's reasons we have to believe this. You can only sort of look at the sun for a second because it'll burn your eyes. Isn't it interesting? The Bible teaches no man can really see God and what? Live. No man can see God and live. So if you see God in all of his glory, you're gonna be dead. Uh, that's what the Bible teaches, interesting. So whenever people sort of see God, um, there's always a, 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 um, something sort of filtering or covering. Remember when Moses sees God? He actually doesn't really see God. God hides him in a cliff, rock, which is where you have to be hidden, uh, the rock of Jesus, by the way. Um, and then the Lord passes by, but only sees his afterglow, whatever came after the remnant of the light that was there. Um, Moses only got to see that, why? Because if you see God in his fullness, you'd be dead. Um, how are we gonna see God someday when we stand before his throne? Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But um, glowing as bright as the sun. The sun, uh, something that we Portlanders often forget, um, the sun is beautiful. I love the sun. We love, you know, a lot of us love seeing the sun, but it's also violent and intense. Um, there's a part of God's nature that I find interesting. There's a warmth and a, a happiness and a brightness, but there's also a violence and an intensity. And if you missed our prophecy update, we talked about the wrath of God. Um, you know, there was a, a heliophysicist, Craig DeForest, who was writing about the sun. Uh, and when you read about some of these guys that know what's going on up there, it, the sun is probably one of those violent places that we could describe in the universe. Um, if sound traveled through space, the sun would be deafening. Um, the sun has about a million of these, what they call convection cells, um, each about the size of Texas, a million of these, that violently rise and sink uh, over the course of just five minutes. And um, I guess the noise that this produces is hard to even describe. This heliophysicist said, imagine 10,000 earths covered in police sirens, all screaming at the same time. That's what the sun would sound like, um, which is an interesting description. Um, but I, I think the power of the sun is sort of a picture of the power of Jesus. Um, uh, you know, by the way, uh, the sun and Jesus are compared in several ways. Did you know in Revelation 22, at the end of the story, when you go to the end of the book, Revelation 22 says, and there shall be no night there in, in you know, the new heaven and the new earth, and they need no candle, neither light nor sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. There's gonna be no need for the sun, why? Because the Lord's gonna shine brightly in the, the new heaven and the new earth. Well, um, uh, what, what are the disciples seeing here? They're seeing a glimpse of Jesus in more of his glorified form. Uh, by the way, uh, there's a couple other sort of glimpses of that. Remember Ezekiel's description of Jesus, uh, pre-incarnate Jesus in his glorified form? And it's very similar to the description in Revelation chapter one in the glorified depiction of Jesus. And there's all these bright images coming from those two descriptions. Um, but that's suddenly what Peter, James, and John are seeing. Jesus, you might say, 
in his glorified form. Now, when, is, when are we gonna see Jesus in his glorified form? As it turns out, in his coming kingdom. What? Well, when Jesus returns a second time, he's not coming as a you know, carpenter from Galilee, as a, a, a man who was made of no reputation, who took upon himself the form of a servant. That's the first coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, he's coming in his glory. And he's gonna come in the brightness of his shining of like the sun. Um, so this starts to answer the cliffhanger we left off on Wednesday night, the verse I mentioned in Matthew 16, 28. Verily I send you, there shall be some standing here, and now we know who they are, Peter, James, and John, which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man um, coming in his kingdom. Now you say, well, Brett, he's not coming in his kingdom. He's just shining like the kingdom. But we have other indicators that points this to Jesus in his coming kingdom form. Now remember, to see a kingdom, the, the main thing you have to see, the main component of a kingdom is a king. Jesus is the king, but now the disciples are seeing Jesus in his glorified brightness. Um, and so um, what Jesus was doing there, the disciples were, um, Jesus was sort of setting up the stage by saying this in chapter 16, verse 28, some of you here are gonna see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Um, before you see death, well, Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus, not only they're coming in his glory, but there's a couple other components that put, put sort of the, 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 the cap on this idea of Jesus and his coming kingdom. This is what they're seeing. In fact, keep your finger here and go with me to Hebrews chapter one. If you flip over to Hebrews one, um, there's an interesting commentary on the brightness of Jesus here. Um, perhaps a commentary on our story of the transfiguration of Jesus or even the way he's gonna come in his kingdom. It's all right here in Hebrews chapter one. It says in verse one of Hebrews one, God, who at sundry times, uh, that means different various times, and in diverse manners, so in different times and different ways, spake in time past to us uh, unto the fathers by the prophets. So God spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament. That's the way he revealed himself. But now, verse two, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now pause there for a second. Did you hear what this just said? This puts Jesus in the category of God. Did you see that? The Trinity is sort of depicted here. How so? Well, it says the son, that's Jesus, whom appointed heir of all things, by whom also made the world. What, did Jesus make the world? Anybody wanna? Yes. Well, you say, well, Brad, I think in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, but do you remember, like this is an interesting thing um, where um, God created the heavens and the earth, but he said, let us make man in our image. Um, that's kind of an interesting sort of thing there that we sometimes forget. Um, but um, that's Genesis uh, 1:26. let us make man in our image. But all that to say, um, Jesus was there at creation. He's part of the Holy Trinity. The spirit was there too, by the way, as the spirit moved on the face of the earth over the water. Like it's all there, the Holy Trinity, let us make man in our image. So Jesus was there at creation. Don't forget, some people think, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's when he first showed up. No, he was the lamb of God that was slain even before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. So Jesus, of course, is God, preexisted. Some people get hung up, by the way, they hear people pray, well, uh, you're praying, God, do this and that, so you're praying, and, and thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Well, Brett, you can't say that, you're praying to God. No, remember, we have one mediator, and the mediator between God and man is who? Is it Mary? 
No, no, that's wrong. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one mediator between God. So when we pray, we can pray to, when I pray, I pray to God the Father. I pray to the, uh, the Son. I ask that the Holy Spirit would fill me afresh. Uh, you know, like, um, I, I, but really the Holy Spirit is the one who, in a sense, prays through us to Jesus, who's our mediator to the Father. Not to be overly complicated, but it's all part of just praying to God. Uh, one being in three persons, the mystery of the Holy Trinity. But all that to say, um, this is radical. This says that Jesus is God in this verse two. But also it goes on, verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had him by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, this is a description that I, I, I bring to the table because it's this word, the brightness of his glory. We're talking about Jesus and his glorified um, godliness. Um, this is what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying. And guess who got to see a glimpse of this, this brightness? Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. Jesus in his glory, in his kingdom form. Um, that's what, that's what he, mark the word brightness here in Hebrews chapter one, because there's a, uh, not to be overly you know, into the Greek stuff. I, some people say, why, it's all Greek to me. Why are we talking about this? Well, the Greek language is so colorful. We have, there's certain words we don't even have English words for. And here's one of them. The word brightness is a sort of a rough translation of this Greek word, alpugasma. You say, well, what is alpugasma? Or apaugasma? It means the shining forth uh, of light coming from a luminous body, um, sort of like coming from the inside out or even um, a word that's close maybe is radiance. Uh, it's, it's the brightness from the inside out. It's not like, um, you know, you all see those Renaissance paintings of Jesus where he's standing there with his fingers like this. I never could figure out why they hold the fingers like this. And then he's always got a plate behind his head. I remember as a kid going, why does he have a plate behind his head? Did he just have dinner? Does he store his plate back there? And then every time the spaghetti comes out, he's gonna pull that out and put the, um, I didn't know what that meant. Somebody said, well, that's the light emanating from you know, Jesus. Um, I, I'm thinking I could do better with my crayons, like uh, coloring that. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was the brightness. Alpogosma means that he was um, bright from the inside out. It was like, it's almost like the disciples had a curtain pulled um, from the veil of his body to where he, they see the brightness of his glory shining from within. Um, you know, it's interesting because that verse also tells us Jesus is God, that he was at creation, that he's all powerful and he's inheriting all things. We're seeing Jesus depicted in Hebrews one, verses one through three in his glory of his coming. Um, by the way, that idea of glory is, um, is another thing that they saw little bits of in the Old Testament. Where did they see the light of God in the Old Testament? When the the day of uh, atonement or Yom Kippur came one day a year. The, the high priest got to go into the temple tabernacle and go in into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And do you remember there was the box of the Ark of the Covenant with the lid. The lid was called the mercy seat made of pure gold. And, um, and then there were two cherubim with angels wings, if you would, outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but they'd sprinkle the, the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed on the middle of the mercy seat. And then the Lord would say, there is where I will meet with you, where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy talks all about that. You say, great, Brett, whatever. But does anybody remember what was dwelling between the cherubim other than the wings? What did they notice that was there? Anybody? 
Huh? The kabod. What's the kabod? Well, um, it, it's the weighty, tangible presence of God was there. And, and there's another word often associated with that. Does anybody remember the word shekinah? That's what this, this the word shekinah means. That there was a visible, almost a light emanating from that place where God said, that's where I'm gonna meet with you in front of the Ark, of the, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the shekinah glory of God, the weightiness of God was there. Um, this is something that God is. God is light, the Bible says, and light is part of the deal. That's why I love Christmas time with Christmas lights. It's, it's a chance for us to remember of Jesus, the light of the world, and I'm so thankful for that. So the, the word brightness here is a word that's out of this world, um, alpugasma. Um, you know, a light bulb shines from the inside out, and, and it's, that's, that's like one of the things we can think of. The sun does that, but as it turns out, Jesus has that same light coming from the inside out. Um, so back to Matthew 17, um, not only Jesus is glowing bright as the sun, but listen, notice in verse, um, uh, verse two, it says, and his raiment, his clothing was white as the light. Um, that's, you say, okay, Brett, that's, that's good. In the Bible, clothing um, speaks of our condition oftentimes. Uh, something if you're new to the Bible, it's worth sort of noticing. Um, your, your clothing you wear can speak of your sinfulness, or that you're washed clean, or even that you're declared righteous. The Old Testament priests, remember they were to put on white linen, which spoke of purity, cleanliness, even ceremonially being clean, uh, the white linen of the, of the Old Testament priests. But also um, our clothes could be like filthy rags. Um, Isaiah 64, six, uh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Um, but good news, Isaiah 61.10, he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. Um, Mark chapter nine, um, robed us in righteousness. Mark chapter nine, verse three, his raiment, uh, this is the way Mark tells us the story. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. Good day, object lesson for today. Is it snowing outside right now? Um, uh, uh, white as snow as no fuller on earth can white them. Mark's attempt explaining his raiment, his clothing, is it, it was a white Purity that we'd never seen before. There's nobody that can wash this thing as white as uh, Jesus's clothing looked. It was whiter than white, uh, purity and clean and bright. That's the idea here. So it's kind of over the top. Uh, you say, so big deal, Brett. Jesus was perfect, bright and all that stuff. But here's the thing. If Jesus wasn't pure, perfect and white and bright, he wouldn't have been qualified to take the sins of the world and uh, die on the cross for our sins. Not only that, this is the good news. Jesus, you might say, well, good for him. He's glowing, bright, created the world, all that stuff. But do you understand the Bible's, the story is Jesus wants to do the same transforming work in you. The same metamorphosis we see, you know, Jesus in his humanity suddenly glowing from the inside out. Um, the Bible speaks that he wants to metamorpho you, metamorphosize you. Um, uh, does anybody need a little bit of a transition from their old sinful man to their new brighter, cleaner version, sign me up. We need that, we're all sinners, we all fall short. There's no one righteous, not even one. And I love it, you know, the same word is used by Paul the apostle there in Romans 12. He says, I beseech you therefore brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. That's the operative word here. Guess what the Greek word for transformed is? Anybody wanna guess? Metamorpho, same word when it says Jesus was transfigured, 
It says, but be ye transfigured or you know, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that, uh, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformed here is metamorpho. Um, how can we be transformed? This verse gives us some of the pointers. Uh, you know, you present your body, a living sacrifice, renewing of your mind, um, your will, doing the perfect will of God. You see, that's, that's, I'm gonna break that down really fast. How can you be transformed? Um, well, submit your body, uh, you know, just, just as a living sacrifice. Say, Lord, um, I'm gonna turn my body over to you because he's gonna do a transforming work, metamorph- metamorphosis. Um, the, the one preacher said, um, the only problem with a living sacrifice is it tends to squirm off the altar. I think that's true. Uh, that's one of the things you and I have to do is submit our bodies to the Lord. Say, Lord, do your work, wash us, cleanse us. You gotta accept Jesus and accept the work of the cross by submitting your body to the Lord. The second thing there is um, submitting your mind. Um, you know, it says by the renewing, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, how is your mind best renewed? Um, the way you renew your mind, uh, the Bible gives us the remedy. The Bible is the remedy. Uh, remember, you know, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse nine, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to the word. And then verse 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Um, the cleansing comes from the word of God, like in um, Ephesians 5, uh, 25 and 26, where, you know, husbands are told, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Boy, we could do a whole sermon on that. Husbands, uh, sacrificial, unconditional love that Jesus has for us. That's the way the husband's supposed to love his wife um, and gave himself for it sacrificially. But then this interesting thing that Jesus does with his church, husbands are supposed to do with their wives, um, that verse 26, that he might sanctify, that means set apart and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Um, when you're in the word, there's a washing and a cleansing that takes place. Now don't get me wrong, when you, when you accept Jesus, it's the blood of Christ that washes us ultimately from our sins. But even as a Christian, you and I live in this world, we walk among sinful, dirty, yucky stuff. Um, and there's a daily cleansing that I love that comes from the washing by the water of the word. So you gotta submit your mind by the washing of the water word. And then the third component uh, is submitting your will, that um, we might have his will done in our lives. If you wanna be transformed, you gotta do these things, submit your body, mind, and will, and say, Lord, I repent of my sins, and I accept the work of Jesus Christ to do the work of washing and cleansing, because Jesus alone is the one that can do that. Um, And then you are transformed into a person that's suddenly light. Remember when Jesus said this in John 8, 12, he said, you know, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. But then shortly, you know, Jesus would say after saying, he's the light of the world. Then he said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Um, uh, I love that the Lord says, "I'm, I'm the light, but you get to be lights as well because that's the work he wants to do. The same brightness in Christ is what he wants to do where he's shining through you. And you know, I've been around church and Christians all my life, I've been saved since I was five years old. And one of the things that's so fun about being a Christian this long is I've seen people metamorphosized. Man, I could tell you stories. Um, even people sitting in this room, the transition of, from one thing to another. Um, and you start to see light beaming out of people and it's kind of a cool thing. And it's not because of them, it's because of Jesus. Um, 
One of the stories I think of the most when I think of this particular topic is um, years ago, a couple um, would show up and I remember seeing they looked troubled and they looked not happy, but they were always sitting back in this section over here, way in the back. Uh, it says a lot about that section right there, but um, no, I'm just, just kidding, mess with you guys. Um, but they'd sit back here and, and they looked kind of out of it, honestly. And I remember just kind of going, I wonder what their thing is. I wonder what the deal is there. Um, well, um, you know, I tried to talk to them a few times and, and there was this kind of this thing and it, it just didn't, I didn't really get through to them or talk to them, but, um, but I just kind of watched. Well, um, one Sunday I noticed she started coming alone. He was no longer with, with her. Um, and then it happened. One Sunday when I gave the invitation, she looked up waved and, and acknowledged that she wanted to accept Jesus. And I was like, that's so cool. And we prayed the prayer like we do here and she accepted Jesus and confessed with her mouth and believed in her heart. Um, but I'm not kidding. Um, week after week, she just kept coming by herself and she got brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. I, I don't even know how to explain it, but she, um, it was only later I found out kind of the story. Um, I talked to her after service. She said, Brett, you gotta, I gotta tell you my story. Do you remember when you used to come up and say hi to us uh, a long time ago and try to talk to us? She said, we were always high on meth. Uh, we, come, we would come to church every Sunday uh, high on meth. That was our thing. Do meth, go to church on Sunday. Um, and, uh, and I was a little shocked. Uh, uh, I thought, well, my, I wonder what my sermons sound like when you're on meth. <laughs> Probably the same. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, no. But, um, but she said, and um, uh, you said something on one Sunday morning that offended my boyfriend so bad. He said, I am never going back to that church. And he, he said, I'm never coming back. And she realized she kind of had to choose. Am I gonna choose him and meth or going to Athey Creek on a Sunday morning? And she dumped him and just kept coming to church. And when, it's interesting, before she, she wasn't even saved, but before she was even saved, the moment she made that decision to leave him and, and keep coming to Athey, the Lord took away her desire for meth. She didn't go through rehab. She didn't even try. She just stopped doing meth, cold turkey. And then it was a few weeks after that, she looked up and accepted Jesus. Then as I watched, she said, man, the Lord has just been changing my life. And what I didn't realize is she got saved and then the beams of light started coming out. The meth had taken its toll on this poor girl. Um, honestly, like, um, you know, uh, not to be insulting, but I thought she and her boyfriend were probably like in their 50s or 60s, but she was actually in her 20s. And by the time she got off meth and started walking with Jesus, man, her, her whole demeanor and, and, and everything changed about her. And she just started beaming light. And it was such a cool thing to watch. And I've watched that for years in ministry and church. People that were alcoholics, that were lives were in misery, that the Lord did a transformation, metamorpho. Um, and, and beams of light start coming out of these people that once they were just full of darkness. And there's nothing better, I think, than to see the transforming work of what the Lord can do. And it's not just alcohol and drugs. It can be sexual promiscuity. There's a darkness there. There can just be open rampant sin in your life and you're wondering what's going on. But the Lord says, I wanna fix that and forgive you of your sin and shine the brightness of the light of Christ in and through you. We're the ones who get to be transformed. Thank the Lord for Jesus. But that's where another issue comes up in our story here in the transformation, uh, the metamorpho, the transfiguration. The next question I wanna talk about is who else shows up in the story? What is the deal? Moses and Elijah pop into the story. This is, I mean, it's miraculous to see Jesus mm, 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 shining like the sun. 
But suddenly you got Moses and Elijah standing there. That's pretty amazing. Did you ever wonder how did Peter, James, and John know it was Moses and Elijah? Like, did Moses look like Charlton Heston holding two tables of stone? <laughs> saying the word, I love the way Charlton Heston uses the word bondage. Bondage. Like the way he says it is just so great. But um, that must be funny to only me. <laughs> I mean, he says the word bondage. My children of Israel are bondage. Like the way he says it, it's just so powerful. But, um, but maybe that was it. But, but, but what about Elijah? Oh, that's Elijah. Did he have lightning bolts kind of going out of the tips of his fingers? I don't know, because he was the powerful prophet that called fire from heaven. Like, how did they know? I'm not really sure, but they knew. Maybe it was divine revelation given to these guys, or maybe just said, uh, Peter, Elijah, Elijah, Peter, Moses, John. I don't know how they figured it out. But, um, but Peter speaks up and, and he says, oh, it's good for us to be Moses, Elijah, and you, Jesus, too. Uh, this is great. By the way, this should put down the dumb idea of reincarnation. I hope none of you believe in the nonsense of reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible says it is appointed once for a man to die, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says that. Um, have you ever talked to people who believe in reincarnation? I always crack up because they always were something great in some other life. I was Alexander the Great in my previous life. Um, they're always a rock star or some famous person. I've never had a reincarnation person. I was once a cow pie sitting in a field in my former life. Um, I was poison oak. Like nobody, nobody says stuff that, they were, that was bad, although um, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, but here, Moses is still Moses centuries after he was dead, um, but he's still Moses. That's kind of important to remember. And Elijah is still Elijah. Now, I'll give you though, both Moses and Elijah, what are they doing here in the story? It has to do with a couple things. It has to do with Jesus telling his disciples, you're gonna see me coming in my kingdom. One of the things about Jesus coming into this kingdom, guess what? There's gonna be a couple Old Testament prophets that are gonna show up. Read Revelation chapter 11. Before the second coming of Jesus, who shows up? These two prophets from the Old Testament who are gonna show up in Jerusalem. It's this crazy story. It reminds me of Christmas. Why does it remind you of Christmas, Brett? Well, do you know the story? These two guys in the tribulation period, after we're raptured, taken up into heaven, Revelation 11 says these two prophets are gonna come and speak in Jerusalem and the whole world is gonna be watching them. 30 years ago, I used to teach this and people say, how's the whole world gonna watch them? Um, now we go, easy, live stream, man. They'll have their iPhones out. Everybody will be watching these prophets in real time. And what'll happen? People say, we don't like what you're saying. And they'll start to wanna lay hands on them and they'll, they'll breathe fire and fire will come out and consume the people that are trying to hurt them. Like that's gonna be quite a TikTok video. <laughs> the Chinese are gonna be shocked when they see that one. Um, but everybody in the world's gonna see this and eventually something bad's gonna happen where these two prophets will be killed and their dead bodies will lay in the street and they'll leave their bodies laying in the street for three days and the world will celebrate and make merry, the Bible says, and give gifts one to another, like Christmas because these two prophets are dead. But just when they're celebrating three days into it, the Bible says, then the prophet, now you might say, Brett, who leaves dead bodies in the street? That's horrible. People in the Middle East, they're really into that. They drag bodies around after they kill them and stuff. Yeah, that's what happens in that region of the world. That's what they're gonna do with these two prophets. But then three days later, the Bible says they're gonna come to life again. They're gonna stand up and say, we're back. Like, I made that part up, I'm sorry. but. Can you imagine people seeing this on CNN in real time? Uh, these two prophets, uh, of course CNN probably won't show it because it's true. Um, so, oh, sorry, sorry. 
sorry. Um, anyway, Jesus in his uh, Jesus in his glorified body with Moses and Elijah. This is a very last days kind of situation that we're talking about here. Um, I think it's important to understand. Um, you know, now by the way, um, both these guys, Moses and Elijah, had curious circumstances surrounding their death. Of course. Actually, Elijah never saw death. He went up in a fiery chariot. Second Kings 2.11 tells us that. Um, you know, that it said there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah never saw death. So that's kind of interesting, especially as it relates to the prophet that's gonna show up in the book of Revelation. I believe personally it's Moses and Elijah. Some say maybe Enoch, and there's a reason for that too. Uh, Enoch never saw death, but that's another uh, debate, debatable thing. But, but um, and then Moses's death was curious. In Jude, uh, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse nine. Um, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Did not bring in a railing uh, accusation against him, but said, "The Lord rebuke thee." What's that all about? I don't know. It's weird though that the devil wanted Moses' body, and Michael said, uh, "No." And, uh, and, and I always like to bring out the point that Michael didn't say, I rebuke you, devil. He didn't say it like that. He said, the Lord rebuke thee. And, and Michael always wins when it comes to the devil. So when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm gonna show you my kingdom before you die, speaking to the three probably, Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus in his glorified body, shining as bright as the sun, and Moses and Elijah, very end times-esque, uh, there from Revelation. And we'll get more into that on Wednesday night. But the truth is, I believe this is what Jesus was referring to. They'd see Jesus in his coming kingdom when they saw him in his glorified body. That's how he's gonna look in his coming kingdom. So then that brings us to the next question, number five on the list. What did Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talk about? Because our verse tells us there in verse three that the, appeared Moses and Elijah talking with them. What were they talking about? What's up? Moses, uh, how you doing? Uh, pretty good, feeling a little tired, never got to go into the promised land, Lord. Um, and Jesus is like, yeah, well, you're here now. I uh, got you here. Uh, you're standing on Mount Hermon. Like, I don't know what they were talking about until, until you get to Luke chapter nine. Uh, we learn a little bit about what they were talking about. It says, behold, there talked with them two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Interesting language there and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So this is where we learn what they were actually talking about. They were talking about his death, his coming death on the cross in Jerusalem. That's what Moses and Elijah were talking about. I, I, I do, I, I get curious and I wonder what were they talking about his death? And I don't know. Um, knowing Moses, I wonder if he was saying, Lord, are you really wanting to die for these morons? Remember when Moses called the people morons? Must we fetch water for you, morons? It says rebels in the King James, but the literal translation, morons. Um, maybe Moses was saying, or maybe Elijah like, step aside, let me fry them all. Uh, I don't know what they were saying about Jesus' death. Come on, Jesus. But Jesus, we, we know that Jesus was not um, going to uh, go away from the cross. He wasn't trying to avoid the cross. I love this prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 50, speaking of Jesus prophetically. I gave my back to the smiters, the whippers, and my cheeks to them that plucked the hair of his beard out. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. 
I wonder if Moses and Elijah, instead of me being sort of bad on them, I wonder if they're, they're, they're saying, you're about to do the greatest deed for all these people of all humanity. Like, was it, was it just a words of encouragement? Well, Brett, did Jesus need encouragement? Well, you gotta remember, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, including, you know, temp- temptation to not do things that we, are, we need to do or, or fear or doubt. He was tempted, but he never sinned. But could it be that, the, that there was this, this before the, the glory of, of the cross would happen, Elijah and Moses had to come and they were there sort of standing with Jesus in kind of a cool way. Uh, but Jesus was in fact determined to go to the cross. And, and why? The Bible says he, um, uh, it was joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. He had you in mind. So here we see Moses and Elijah with Jesus. Now, Here's the thing, um, Moses' name is synonymous with the law. He's the giver of the law. That's why I always see pictures of Moses carrying the 10 commandments because it wasn't the, just the 10 commandments, it was the 613 commandments of all the Jews. He was known for being the guy of the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And if you go back to our Hebrew scripture, it says at various times the Lord spoke through the prophets, Moses and Elijah. But in the brightness of his coming, he's gonna come in his glory where Jesus, all the attention goes to Jesus. Some say, well, in the New Testament, all the attention goes to Jesus. And so some people say, see, we only need to go through the New Testament because that's all that matters, Jesus. But if Jesus matters, did you know the Old Testament then matters too? Because um, Jesus is all throughout the scriptures. Um, you know, some theology of different groups, uh, there's some, some you know, Jews that struggle with this. They say, well, okay, we believe in Jesus, Messianic Jews but they really wanna cling to the Old Testament laws, the keeping of the laws and stuff like that. And they wanna cling to the festivals and the feasts. Um, That's biblically wrong. Old Testament teaching and tradition. We love the Old Testament because, and we teach through it. We just finished the Old Testament. Um, And we teach through it because it's all about Jesus. Uh, You know, Hebrews 10, seven, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. The road to Emmaus, remember Jesus after he rose from the grave that he walked with two guys on a road and they're like, um, don't you know about this guy, Jesus? And they, Jesus started telling them about himself in the Old Testament from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, how he was in the book. Luke 24, verse 13 through 35 tells us about that. And, and what about the feast of the Jews, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths, you know, all the rules and laws. And, and in the early church, some of them were saying, you, you Gentiles need to keep all those festivals and feasts. And Paul says, no, we don't. Paul was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And he's saying, no. Where did he say that? Colossians chapter two, um, um, in verse uh, 16 and 17. It says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You see, Elijah and Moses, they were all part of that Old Testament construct to point us to the real deal, Jesus. The Old Testament law, it was given to point us to Jesus. The prophets spoke prophecies that would point us ultimately to Jesus. And that's the key here. Um, Man, I hope we remember this because people get caught up on things that are not Jesus, but just the shadow. I always use that clumsy example, but I can't think of a better one. If I come home from work and Debbie comes running out to say, hello, Brett, you're home. And she runs out and then she starts kissing my shadow on the ground, patting my shadow on the head and saying, welcome home, honey. I'm like, I'm up here, honey. Uh, That's my shadow. I'm the real deal. 
Um, that's what some of the Christians do when they get caught up in the feast, the festivals, the Sabbath, the new moon. They're just a shadow of the body, which is of Christ. That's what this verse is telling us. So some people, they get off the main thing and they're doing only things that we're meant to point to, be indicators of the true real deal. That's important, keep that tucked away because that brings us to the next thing, what did they do? When they saw Jesus, Moses and Elijah, transfigured, shining bright as the sun, Jesus, what did Peter, James and John do? Um, this cracks me up because um, our verse here, verse four says, then answered Peter. Nobody asked him anything but he still offered an answer. Uh, Mark chapter nine account of this, it says, for Peter did not know what to say. So he said, um, I, I can relate to Peter. You know, do you ever get in that place where you don't know what to say? So you start talking and as you're talking, you're like, what am I saying? Um, it happens to me all the time, uh, I think. Uh, and probably some of you too. Sometimes I feel like uh, Peter, you know, um, it's better to keep your mouth shut and have people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. It's a true saying. But Peter opens his mouth and he says, oh Lord, it's good for us to be here, but let's build three tabernacles or booths or little huts or whatever. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And, and, and now what's interesting, um, did you notice the, the wording reminds me of something? And I, I didn't bring this out in the last few services, but I, 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 I'll mention it at this one. Um, it says, then answered Peter and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make three tabernacles. So at least he's saying, Lord, permit me to. Um, like he did, if you will, let me come walk on the water with you. I wonder if Peter, feeling his Cheerios from chapter 16, remember he said, you are the Christ, the Christos, the son of the living God. Now Peter's like, oh Lord, here we are. This is amazing. I'll tell you what, oh, I got an idea. Uh, if it's your will, uh, we'll build three tabernacles. Of course it is. But, uh, uh, and he's like, you kind of get the sense that Peter's got this dumb idea to build these tabernacles. Um, and this is where God, the father, uh, there's no question God the Father is like, uh, no. I always say God opens up the sky and says, zip it, Pete. Uh, I didn't read that. Well, that's kind of what happens. Peter starts yakking away about these tabernacles and then this cloud comes in, this bright, bright cloud overshadows them. And then the voice from heaven, which is God, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That means zip it, Pete. Uh, stop talking now. And that's where the story goes really kind of crazy. And when the disciples heard that, they fell on their face. Uh, the idea is as dead men, and they were just laying there freaked out. And, and in fact, the ESV uh, says, better translation if you ask me on this particular word, they were terrified. When they heard the voice from God from heaven, they were terrified, laying face down, freaked out, uh, thinking they're all gonna die. That's how bad this was. Now, why was God so interrupting? That's kind of rude. Shouldn't he have let Peter finish his sentence? Peter was doing something that was actually really dastardly and bad by saying, oh, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah and our good old friend Jesus. Like I'm, I'm reading into it, but it's almost like Peter is equating Elijah, Moses and Jesus all in the same sort of sentence. And that's the worst thing you could do. And God says, Forget Moses and Elijah for a second. This is my beloved son, Peter, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him, not Moses, not Elijah. Hear ye him. Jesus is the key here. Um, and, and so they fall down, freaked out. Um, but this is where I love, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
This is a life verse for me because the Lord showed me as a young man, my first sermon I preached when, uh, to a big congregation when I was 17, um, this was my text, uh, Matthew 17, verse eight. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Good news, man. I'm so glad. See, Peter wanted to sort of, um, you know, do a scrapbook and, and collect and remember, oh, this is awesome, Moses, Jesus, Elijah. Let's do this and make sure and, and save and memorialize this whole thing. Let's build tabernacles and blah, blah, blah. But the, the point is, it was Jesus only that God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus only is what they should be really thrilled that they looked up and saw. Because if you think about it, what? I always like to think about what would happen if they looked up and saw no man save Moses only. I mean, I mean, I wonder if Peter, James, and John would have been like, sorry, Jesus, we lost you and everything, but we got Moses. We need to bring Joseph, Moses down this Mount Hermon and, and we, we're gonna go talk to those Pharisees and Sadducees, those people of the law. They were so messed up, Moses will set them straight. And things are so unruly, we need more of the law. Moses, the law. But see, the law, we forget the law was meant to do what? It was meant to drive us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remember Galatians 3, 24, it says, wherefore the law, which was given by Moses, was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Moses would have been a sorry exchange for Jesus. But you almost get a sense Peter makes this mistake. Or what if they looked up and saw no man save Elijah only? Oh, sorry, Jesus is gone. He was a good friend for these last three years and did some cool stuff. But Elijah is here. Raised people from the dead, but he also called fire from, we need more fire. Fire from heaven, that's what we need. I, I get a lot of Christians today that I get a sense they'd like to have Elijah around, burning up the people of the other political party or burning up those people that do this or burning up this or that. That's, that's the way Elijah rolled. Some people would love that. But praise the Lord, they didn't look up and see Elijah only because we don't need more fire and death and destruction. What did Jesus, Jesus came to keep people out of the fire. He died on the cross to keep us from the fires of hell. If Elijah only came down the mountain, then everybody would end up in hell burning forever and all eternity. Thank the Lord. They, what if they pretend for a second, they looked up and saw nobody. What if Peter, James, and John had to go down the mountain? Uh, sorry, we lost Jesus and uh, we're on our own. Well, think about that. Does anybody remember, you Bible students, what's the first thing they would see when they come down Mount Hermon? The demon-possessed guy. And can you imagine if they just came down? Remember, they, the disciples would say, well, there's this guy, he's filled with a demon, but we couldn't cast him out. And Jesus said, well, I'll have to take care of that one. Remember that story? Uh, with prayer and fasting, this one comes out. Jesus knew what to do. I'm so thankful that Jesus came down the mountain. Speaking of coming down mountains, when's the last time Moses came down a mountain? What happened? Well, Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the 10 commandments and the old joke, remember? Who's the most wicked man in all the Bible? Moses, he broke the 10 commandments all at the one time. Um, that's sort of funny. But worse than that, when Moses came down Mount Sinai, 3,000 people were slaughtered that day. Do you remember that? because they were dancing nakedly around the golden calf that they had worshiped while Moses was on Mount Sinai. And Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites pulled out their swords and started hacking up the people that were worshiping the golden calf. 3,000 people dead that day. That's what happened when Moses came down the mountain. What happened when Elijah came down the mountain? Remember the story there? Just a few miles away from Mount Tabor is Mount Carmel, same altitude as Mount Tabor. 
But Elijah was up there with the prophets of Baal. Remember they had the Super Bowl of prophets, the fire from heaven incident there, and he called fire from heaven. But when Elijah went down the mountain, what did he do? He went down to the brook at the base of the mountain and slaughtered the 450 prophets of Baal, dead. 450 guys died that day. So now they're on Mount Hermon with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and it says they looked up and saw no man save Jesus only. So what happens when Jesus comes down the mountain? See, I, I don't want to trade. What a sorry trade. Moses, Elijah for Jesus. I'm not arguing um, that you know, Moses and Elijah aren't important. They were in the Bible to point us to Jesus, to show our need for Jesus. That's what, that's what the whole book is about. So I'm so thankful they looked up and saw no man save Jesus only because Jesus came down the mountain, healed the, the guy demon possessed, went to the cross, died for the sins of the whole world and saved us all from our sins. Man, I'm so thankful that they looked up and saw no man save Jesus only. And that's what we need to be about, Jesus only. Churches get off the main thing. We gotta keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. We do that with so many things. I think at Christmas time, this time of year, sometimes we're reminded what's it all about and people say, oh, you know, silver bells and Santa Claus and Christmas trees and all that. And we forget the reason for the season. But it's not just a Christmas mistake. We forget the reason for everything. You know, Jesus is our everything year round. We sh everything should always be about Jesus only because it's, there's no other name under heaven that can, men can be saved. Not Moses, not Elijah, you know, not Oprah, not Muhammad, not Krishna. Um, no, you, you can be saved by Jesus. I'm so glad the disciples looked up and saw no man save Jesus only. He's the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus. It's only Jesus who can save. Well, that's narrow. I don't know if I like that. Doesn't matter what you like. Jesus is the one, the way, the truth, and the life. And what he said was true. And uh, that's the question. What do you do? What do you think about Jesus? I have learned over the years to not only be, it's Jesus only, but to be so thankful and so blessed that Jesus was the one who cared, who died on the cross for our sins. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, uh, it's the big deal. That's what Athey Creek is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about all the things we make Christianity about. It's all about Jesus, Jesus only. May the Lord give us ears to hear and a heart to love and appreciate what Jesus did for us on the cross. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider this story, what an amazing story of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John get to see just a snapshot of, of your glory, of your coming kingdom. But Lord, um, we look forward to that day because you tell us in your word that when we see you, we will be like you. Lord, that, that you did all this knowing that we get to be transformed into light from darkness, that you robe us in light and, and righteousness. Because of what you did, Lord, we get to enjoy forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Um, Lord, that we are the lights of this world because you are the light. I pray that our lights would shine before all men, Lord, that your church would constantly be pointing to your son, Jesus. Um, especially this time of year, I pray that we'd be all about Jesus only. So give us wisdom, Lord. Thank you for this passage. What an amazing story. We ask this and thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.